Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Just wanted to make sure we have all of our settings correct today. We are live. And today, this is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. We have a show for you that is just the two of us talking today. And we want to talk with you specifically about some recent news in the life insurance industry. And if you're aware of life insurance and you're thinking about infinite banking, it maybe has come across your radar and maybe not. So we are a source for you to be able to figure out what is going on in the industry, how it impacts you as an infinite banking user. And specifically today, this topic is demutualization. I will fumble that word over the course of this show today. It is a very difficult one to say. So today we're talking about the process of legally turning from a mutual company to a stock company, what that means for you, and should this be on your radar as you are doing and using the infinite banking concept. So Bruce, thank you so much for um, bringing this topic to my attention and also just for being willing to have courageous conversations about things that really matter and matter to people who are making decisions on the show. Yeah, this is, um, this is, this is going to come up when people are looking into this because <clears throat> a recent mutual company has announced on March 23rd, <clears throat> Ohio National, who's been in <clears throat> business since 1909, has recently announced that they are <clears throat> merging with a Canadian company um, for $1 billion. And this happened on March 23rd. And I know people are going to, to uh, look at this as you know something that is throwing up a, a red flags. And I tell people all the time, it depends on uh, Thomas Sewell, if anybody ever follows him, he's, he always says, compared to what? So what are you comparing this to? So that's what we're going to attempt to try to uh, to debunk today and, and see if we can provide some clarity on this. I love it. Debunk and clarity. So those are the two um, buzzwords for today. Let's Let's keep those in mind. So Yes, Ohio National has recently demutualized. Several other companies that used to be mutual companies have demutualized in the past as well. And so this might be a question on your mind because you might be saying, well, what is a mutual company? Why is that really important for infinite banking? What is the opposite? What is not mutual? That's a stock company. So we're going to answer how a mutual company works. What is the difference between mutual and stock company? We're going to talk about why you normally do want to think about using a mutual company for infinite banking and why life insurance companies demutualize and what you should do or what should be on your radar, what you should be thinking about if you are concerned about your company demutualizing. So if we're covering the question that's specifically on your mind, we are glad that we're able to do that. If you have other questions related to this topic, we would love to hear them while we're live or after the fact. So if you are with us on Facebook or on YouTube live, we'd love to hear your questions throughout this conversation today. And if you're catching the podcast after the fact on maybe Apple Podcasts or maybe you are listening through our website at themoneyadvantage.com, we'd love to hear your emails or your um your feedback specifically, I guess email would be the best way if you're listening after we're live. And that would just be for being able to ask us questions and we can be able to answer your questions. So please, if you like this content, I would love for you to give us a thumbs up, give us a like on Facebook or YouTube, and please subscribe. We have a lot more content than what we're sharing on a live basis on a on a weekly Wednesday schedule. And we want to make sure that you hear about all the great conversations that we're having. So Bruce, I think it's really important to, at the forefront of any of these conversations, to give a really super basic definition of what is infinite banking? Why are we talking about this at all? And this is really just for the person who's saying, you know, this sounds like an interesting conversation, but I have no idea. I, I have no concept of where you're even going, what this even means. So let's just come um, to you right now. And if you don't have any idea what infinite banking is, you're about to find out. So please don't feel left behind. Infinite banking also called privatized banking, is a concept that was formalized by Nelson Nash. He has recently passed away, but he had a way of thinking about 
life insurance, specifically whole life insurance, that was different, but not new. So it was this way of saying, hey, my whole life insurance policy actually has this cash value inside of it. And instead of just buying the policy, waiting for it to pay out, setting it on the shelf and forgetting about it, how about if I use this policy and I access the cash value because I'm entitled to do that as a policy owner? And he actually came into a a financial difficulty where he realized the best place he could turn for capital was the cash value inside of his policy. It was there under his nose this whole time, but he wasn't actively using it. So he wrote a book called Becoming Your Own Banker. And there's many people now who are helping people to create, design, and use whole life insurance policies. Now, this is not any whole life insurance policy. This is a specially designed, dividend-paying, whole life insurance policy usually with a mutual company. And that is what we say when we talk about infinite banking. The reason that you want to do that is because you you have a policy that's building cash value and you have a strategy of using that where you're borrowing against the cash value, collateralizing your policy, using other people's money, putting that to work. And in order or in when you do that, you're able to get your money working in the policy with growth. It continues to grow uninterrupted, Meanwhile, at the same time, you're using the same dollars and putting them to work in an external investment or opportunity or emergency. You're using it for some purpose in your life. And so what this means is that you are getting your money to multitask and work harder for you doing two things at once. So if that sounds interesting to you, maybe you're a business owner and you want to have capital reserves that you can access and use. Maybe you're a person who's saying, I have a savings account, but I'm barely earning anything on this and I want my savings to work harder. Maybe you're in a position where you just want a safe, secure, guaranteed part of piece of capital in your financial life so that you can say, I don't have to worry that all of my investments are just blowing with the winds of the stock market and I'm in control. This is a conversation for you. So that's what infinite banking is all about. Bruce, anything you want to add there before we kind of dig into this demutualization idea? Yeah. The only thing I'd like to to clarify, you said it's usually done with a mutual Mm -hmm company. It's always done with a mutual company. Now, there are people out there on the internet that are saying you can do it with other types of companies. But if you're actually following the Nelson Nass, the founder of this protocols, uh, Nelson would say it, ha- it, w- it should be with a mutual company that is participating. That means you participate in the dividends. Um, I believe that it if you're going to utilize the cash value, it should be with a non-direct recognition company. Although Nelson never really uh, clarified this one way or another, it can also be with a direct recognition. We're not going to go into that right now. Um, And this is very important uh, because in order to get the dividends, you have to be with a participating mutual company. And to say it even more uh, simply, that simply means mutual. It doesn't have to be an insurance company. It could be any any arrangement that's mutual. Simply means that you are part owner in the company, so you get to participate in the dividends. Um, I've said this on a, on the show before. Co-ops are are very similar to this farming co-ops. So. What you have to then realize is that um, if you're interested in this concept, many people are going to be researching it, and they may actually say, um, oh, well, wait a minute. I just noticed that this this um, mutual company actually demutualized into a stock company. What does that mean for us? And so that's what we're going to try to clarify today. Excellent. And Bruce, thank you for clarifying that as well. And we always have said that it is with a mutual company. Um, I think I was, um, you're just excited. I was, I was, and I was also making sure that we want to make sure that as we're talking about this concept today, this topic, that it is not something that you should be afraid of. It's not something that will ruin infinite banking. So I want to just say that up front, And I think that's why I said usually with a mutual company. So we're going to clarify that. Yes, infinite banking is done with a mutual company. However, even if you're with a mutual company and there is a potential for that company to go non-mutual and turn into a stock company, that is not a reason to be afraid. So I'll just say that up front. Okay, Bruce, let's talk about what exactly is a mutual company 
and what is a stock company? What are the differences between those two? I'll let you go ahead with that first. Yes, yeah, sure. So a mutual company, as I just stated, is, is a company that is actually owned by the policyholders. And this is really important because the leadership of these particular company companies are not under the pressure to actually be holden to stock comp- stockholders. Now let's just think about this for a second. You can buy, you can buy stock into a insurance company and not actually have a policy with the company. And so you want the company to do well, even though you don't have a policy. And so you will put pressure on the board of the board of the stock company to actually perform and keep the stock price up. If you, if you ever look at the compensation of the CEOs and the management of stock companies, they are at least twice, and in most cases, 10 times more than the CEOs of mutual companies. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, in order to attract this type of talent to the stock company, um, they have to do that. The other reason is, <clears throat> these particular people are also negotiating their, their salary because they have some inside connections um, that they can actually work to do, keep the, in, the stock higher. Investment banking ar- arrangements, lobbyist arrangements, so on and so forth. So they're highly valuable outside <clears throat> that they can keep the stock. And they are very motivated. And this is the, par- this is the problem. Uh, that I think comes all all the time is they are very motivated to keep their the stock price up because a majority of their compensation is is tied to the stock price. Mm-hmm. So they will get they will be given several stock options. When I say several, I mean several hundreds, in some cases thousands of stock options as part of their compensation if they can keep the stock price up. And they're looking to retire in most cases. So they are actually then trying to do short-term every 90 days. They're trying to do things with a short-term investment horizon to, because they have to report every 90 days to the stockholders. And so they're trying to keep the stock price up. And then they have a short-term window. Most of these people that are become CEOs of these particular companies obviously are older because the older people have, have developed these relationships, they develop these talents, so on and so forth. So their window of actually working for these companies is relatively short. Now, when I say relatively short, I'm, I'm saying relatively short to what is going to be generational death benefits. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing things to actually um, help them in a short period of time where a mutual company, the CEO, president is not his compensation is not stock uh, tied to the stock price it's much much lower and thus because of that they do not have pressure from stockholders to keep a particular stock price up and they can make decisions investment wise that will be out generations instead of making short term risky riskier investment decisions and so that's basically the difference between st- stock and mutual companies. And once again, I just want to emphasize this a little bit, is that this can happen in any industry, not just insurance. It just happens that insurance um, is, is in the forefront of this. Yeah. And especially as we're having this conversation right now, and especially as we've just had a recent change or switch from a small private member-owned mutual company which is what a mutual company is, over to becoming a publicly traded stock company. And so that process, what's really interesting about that is that if you have a member-owned company, then the people who are most benefiting and most uh, the interest that is being served is the members in a mutual company. The um, profitability of the company is distributed via dividends to policyholders. If you're a policyholder, you're a part owner of the company. And that is part of your growth that you get inside the policy. Now, if you're new to infinite banking or new to insurance, you might be 
not sure about what exactly that means. So your growth is set by guaranteed interest that is on your policy illustration and is set for your policy. There's also non-guaranteed dividends. So you expect that dividends will be paid. And in most cases, these mutual companies have paid dividends for years, years and years, over 100. 100 years, yeah, 100 plus years. Yes, over close to 200. In some cases, yes, 170 plus years. So when you think about them paying dividends, a mutual company paying dividends through the depression, through the great recession, through multiple economic downturns and crises. And you think of a company, an industry being secure and stable enough to be able to make dividend payments to their policy owners. That's something that says a lot. It says that you can count on dividends to be paid, just they're not guaranteed. They're not written into the language of the contract that they're guaranteed. They are non-guaranteed. So when you switch over then to a stock company, the interest is the stockholders, the stock price, and not the policy owners. So what's interesting about that as well is that, Bruce, isn't it true that the public company then, the way that they can raise capital is they can just issue more stock and they can raise capital, whereas a mutual company doesn't have that opportunity, right? Yeah, exactly. Technically, they can only, um, if they have treasury stocks, stocks in reserve, then they could sell additional stock. Um, this is this is something we've talked about on the show before is the only time a company actually gets an influx of cash is at the initial public offering when they when they they do the change from a private company to a public company so it's very similar from a mutual demutualizing at that time the SEC will actually um, approve how many shares of stocks but in most cases, a company will say, we're going to have this many shares of stocks, but we're not going to sell all of them. We're going to hold some of them back for the future. Now, the reason they don't want to necessarily sell those is because it dilutes the stock for their already stockholders. So that doesn't come up very often. So the only way to raise capital for a mutual company is to actually sell more policies. Mm -hmm. and get more premium coming in. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, in a lesser way, investment returns, but they don't take risk because they don't want to be in this situation. Um, Ohio National, which we're we're focusing on today, um, I'm actually appointed with them for the last 10 years. But even after I was convinced by one of their representatives to be appointed, I looked at their financials. And although their Comdex score and all their other rating scores was were not terrible, they weren't one of the highest. And then they didn't really get in tr- that much trouble with their their whole life insurance business. They actually got in trouble with their annuity business. Um, both their inde- uh, index annuity business, but specifically, uh, more specifically with their variable annuity business, which, surprise, surprise, is tied to the stock market. Right. Uh, but what's interesting, it, 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 they still, it wasn't because of the stock market that caused the variable annuity. Barbara Turner, the new CEO of Ohio National, a few years ago, they actually, they actually cleaned house of all the managing partners and brought in new people. And so, th- so don't think Barbara messed up the company. She's actually trying to, to actually fix the company now. Uh, She said the reason why um, they are actually doing this is because of historically low sustained interest rate environment. And this is very interesting because this is something I've been talking with clients all the time when, when they're asking about different mutual companies. And I tell them all the time, dude, I would not base my decision on the declared dividend on the illustration because the declared dividend on the illustration changes Mm -hmm. uh, historically from one company to the other. In other words, company A may have relatively high dividends now to company B, but if you go back 10 or 12 years, Mm -hmm. it switches. It all depends on how, how they're looking at and forecasting the 
future. The companies now, uh, and we'll talk about Northwestern Mutual because uh, they're a captive company. Northwestern Mutual has been very aggressive in lowering their um, dividends over the last 10, 12 years. I applaud them for that because now you hold up a Northwestern Mutual illustration compared to another illustration and it doesn't look as good. But yet Northwestern Mutual knows the prudent thing to do is to lower interest rates uh, right now. Uh, uh, Excuse me, lower dividend rates, Mm -hmm. right? uh, Declared for the future um, um, projections so that they can be financially sound. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when you get to, I call it, li- I call illustrations, liar's poker. You know, it's like, um, there are some regulations for this, but really it's, it's not only the declared dividend rate, it's also how they then, that's a gross dividend rate that then has to be, uh, fees have to be taken out of that. So just because one company says they're 6.1 and another company says they're 5.3 doesn't mean that they're, they're going to actually apply those to the actual policy. And this is something that you have to understand as you go along with the, um, with the, with, when trying to determine which company you're going to use. I always say it comes down to financial strength and customer service, financial strength and customer service. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the things you need to, um, realize we're uh, i'm not sure what we want to talk about today but i got several other things oh we- listen we can go all over the place with this what i wanted to point out real quick is you're talking about financial strength we're also talking about the reserves that a company holds because that is going to clarify what their financial strength is so a life insurance company with more reserves is going to be more prepared to pay policyholder um, death benefits. They're more prepared to weather economic uncertainty in the financial environment. They're more prepared to do everything and they're stronger and more stable. And so what's interesting is that because the mutual company is more conservative, they're more long range in their viewpoint, they tend to hold larger surpluses, also knowing that they can't go issue stock to raise capital. They're in a position where they're thinking long range. So just something I wanted to mention on the financial stability of companies and being financial sound. So I love that you brought in that financial strength piece. So Bruce, we have kind of hinted at it. So let's just clarify the process of demutualization. What this actually means is the company would be legally changing its structure from that private member-owned dividend-paying company structure over to a publicly traded stock company. And that is what the process is. And usually, Bruce, this is something that is really important to point out because you might be thinking, well, what if I accidentally get into a life insurance company that eventually some at some point down the road demutualizes? How will I foresee those warning signs, if you will? How do I know, are they going to do this? Should I be concerned? Or what if I'm thinking about getting a policy now, or I already have a life insurance policy and it's with a stock company? Is that going to work for me? How can I think about using this policy? So, um, Bruce, what happens for the policy owners usually when the company demutualizes? I think this is really important. Yeah. So, uh, I, this actually happened to me uh, in the '80s, and so simply, what will happen is um, they can or can, they don't have to, but they can offer stock to you uh, as part of the deal didn't happen in my case. Um, but what, what happens is your cash value is still intact, your death benefit's still intact, everything's still intact. The only thing that changes is now um, the process of participating in the profits. So you'll stop receiving dividends. I don't know of any case that you don't uh, receive the dividends on that. Now, if you get the stock and they declare uh, a dividend on the stock, then yes, you could do that, but it's two separate entities. Now, this is where you have to make the decision, and I had to make the decision, do I take my cash value and 1035 it to another company, or do I just keep it with that company? And I decide just to keep it with the company, and I just keep paying my premium payments, and I get the interest, the guaranteed interest on it, and so on and so forth. The reason I didn't 1035 it is because I did a, 
an analysis and, and I wanted to keep the higher death benefit mm-hmm. that uh, I had than when I, if I would have changed the cash value to another company, it wouldn't have been quite as high of a, of a death benefit. So that's why I did it. Um, so, so what's important to note to, here is you didn't, you didn't turn tail and run and say, this company turned into a stock company, abandon at all costs. You didn't do that. You didn't even get scared or say, I don't like this anymore. It stopped paying dividends, which means you're not getting as high of a return. Your cash value and your death benefit are not growing as fast as they would have been had dividends been issued and been turned into additional PUAs in the policy. However, you decided I'm going to stay with this policy. I think that's really important for somebody to hear. So if you're currently with Ohio National and you just went from mutual to stock company, that is not a reason to say, oh, no, 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 we have to get out of this policy right now. This is let's figure out what's going on. We're going to talk more about this, but I think it's really important to hear that just because a company goes stock does not mean it's a bad thing. Yeah. And let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about, there, there's been a lot of demutualizations. Um, a lot of them happened from like 1997 to 2001, five of the 15 largest mm-hmm. life insurance companies demutualized. Um, and then another 10 major ones demutualized after, t- uh, from two th- uh, in 2000 and from 2000 to 2003. And it's not all about it's not all about uh, low interest rate environments because at that time it wasn't about the low interest rate environments. It was actually three reasons, and I'm actually reading from a a study by the University of Massachusetts by a couple of their economics professors who did this. And what they basically said is there was several things that did it. One was that the 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 stock market actually was starting to perform very well in the 90s. And so people decided, oh, well, my boring whole life insurance wasn't doing as well for me as the stock market. And so there wasn't as much interest in doing whole life insurance. And so we go back to Thomas Sewell again. It's like, what do you compare? We say this all the time, compared to what? We're not trying to compare this strategy to an investment. It's not an investment. We're comparing to the banks. The second reason was there was a change in the IRS tax code for the insurer, not the person that was insured, but so the company mm-hmm. that actually made it less advantageous to run the company. There were increased, as we came, became a more global um, uh, economic situation, foreign insurance companies came into the United States and started gobbling up market share. Um, I'm actually appointed by one of those companies, Aviva, out of Great Britain. And I have, I've used some of their products. And so they, they started losing market share. And then the final one is the deregulation of the financial services industry with the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999. And when that happened, it allowed uh, banks, investment banks, insurance, and securities operations to not not remain separate anymore, and so that actually um, it took the competitive advantage away from just insurance companies to say, "Hey, this is an insurance product," and it wasn't commingled with other things, and so that took market share away from these mutual companies also, and so. That what I'm trying to say was when you're looking at all these things, then it wasn't these companies didn't necessarily demutualize because they were in terrible financial shape. They demutualized because they thought, oh, we have to do this to maintain market share. And I've seen mm-hmm. this over the course of my career. It used to be whole life was the only was the only person on the only product on the street. And then <clears throat> All of a sudden, you know, like term came around. And then all of a sudden, the, the insurance company said, oh, we need something to fight the fact that a lot of people aren't putting money in the, here. They're going to the stock market. So then they developed universal life. And then interest rates started to lower. And they said, oh, we got to get into the stock market. So insurance companies developed variable universal life. And then the stock market didn't do very well. So then they said, okay, we're going to develop something 
in case the stock market goes down. And now the new new kid on the block is Index Universal Life. I'm not saying this is this is bad because this is what companies do. They adjust to the economic uh, things. It's called capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, we're tr- they're trying to figure it out. They're making better products. I always say this is good for the consumer. This is great for the consumer. You're getting a better product. It's, well, they're innovating and they're looking they're for what exactly. do people want and they're trying to serve those needs best. That's exactly right. And, and, so, and so when you see a demutualization and it, or if you don't want a demutualization company, if you're saying to yourself, I, but I want to do infinite banking and I need dividends, so on and so forth. Then you should be looking at the companies with the highest financial rating because even though they still could demutualize, they're less incentive to demutualize. So the companies that we work with um, mainly, uh, Lafayette Life, uh, Penn Mutual, and Mass Mutual, all have really strong financials. Frankly, Mass Mutual and and Lafayette Life are stronger than Penn Mutual. Those are they're strong, and I frankly think Lafayette is stronger. When you look into the future, even a little bit stronger than Mass Mutual because Lafayette Life. I've listened to the president of the Western Southern Financial Group, who is actually holding Lafayette Life as a subsidiary of Western Financial. Western Southern Financial Group, and they are sitting on 14% more reserves than are required. The top 10 companies, insurance companies, are sitting on an average of 7% higher reserves, and Lafayette Life has doubled those. And so they're sitting on a lot of cash. And his explanation of this, I thought, was brilliant. He said that, yes, interest rate environments are very, very low. He doesn't believe they're going to stay low. So he doesn't want to buy bonds necessarily that are uh, a low rate right now and hold them for a long time because he's, it's not that much greater than cash. So he wants to have cash on hand as interest rates go up. He can then buy the higher returns on the, in the bond market, and he doesn't have to sell any of the lower performing bonds at that time at a discount Interesting to, to get the higher returns. And that is why that is what it, what happened in the bond market from nineteen basically nineteen eighty eighty one all the way down to about two thousand and eight is the bond interest rate yield is a teeter totter. So as interest rates go downward, the yield in the bonds go upward. And why is that? Because if I'm holding a bond that's paying six percent. A thousand dollar bond paying six percent, and the bond goes down. Uh, the thirty year treasury goes down, or ten year, whatever treasury you're buying goes down. So let's say a thirty year treasury would go down to four percent. Then I would have to sell my um, bond at a premium to actually to somebody who doesn't want the four percent. So they're mm-hmm. like, why should I buy a four percent? I'd like to have that six percent yield. And so I'm going to offer you more than $1,000 to get that 6% yield. And so for those 35 years or so, they were making a lot of yield as they were going downward. The exact opposite happens as interest rates rise. If I buy a 10-year treasury that's sitting at about 1.72, I think, as of yesterday, and I buy that 10-year treasury, and then two years later, it goes up to 25 well, why would I, why would I buy a one point seven five return? Well, you could at a discount. I'll say, okay, I'll give you eight hundred dollars for that one point seven five, and somebody might take it, and then your overall yield to maturity may be greater than what the two percent bond would be. So these are things insurance companies are are trying to do all the time. Now that's if you have to hold the bond. To maturity. This is where insurance companies that take a long term look, and I know this is kind of more uh, financial education than maybe a lot of our listeners want to get. This is good though. But this is why insurance companies that take a long term view on the bond market, they don't have to sell their bonds. 
And you say, well, wait a minute, but don't they want to get greater returns as interest rates go up? Yes, but every month they have new premium coming in. So they just take the new premium and they buy the increase uh, interest rate without selling the other ones at a discount. So that's how they are advantageous to an individual bondholder. They have an advantageous financial uh, advantage to an individual bondholder because they don't have to sell their bonds at a discount when, when the bond rates go up. They just, can, they just have new premium. They can buy the new, the new interest rate. This is, this is why if you did not react to the low interest rate environment fast enough that you could then not have enough capital reserves to actually um, reap the reserve requirements and thus you had to raise more capital. And the only way to raise more capital in a mutual company is to sell more product. But if you, if you're kind of shaky and another thing that uh, what happened with Ohio national is they stopped paying uh, trail commissions to their agents. And so the agents were not, motivated to go out and service their products. And this caused them to have even more less print. My, I don't know this for sure, but it, it makes logical sense that this caused them not to have more premium coming in. So they had to find a way to get more capital in. And I believe that's probably why they had to then um, merge to become a stock company. Bruce, I think this is very interesting, and it's very interesting thinking about the perspective of being a policy holder, and specifically because if you are a policy holder with a mutual company and you're receiving dividends, and you're hoping that in today's low dividend interest rate environment that we'll even see higher dividends in the future than what are shown on the illustrations today, you could be saying, this is very interesting thinking about the long-term performance of the company. And really, I think if we just step back from the whole picture and realize that overall, if you include mutual with stock companies and we take away the classification, we just say insurance companies or the insurance industry as a whole has been very stable and very strong for a really long time. Yeah, very strong because uh, when you demutualize, it's been proven in this paper um, that the stock of the company that was uh, that became the stock company now actually outperformed the S and P five hundred mm-hmm. um, twelve out of the fifteen times. Which so the, that's fascinating in itself. Yeah, yeah, and so once again, as we started this podcast, it's like compared to what? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? Are you a hardcore? A hardcore infinite banking person and said, no, I want to just make sure I'm working with a, well, you can't make sure for a hundred percent, but you want the best chance of this particular company staying a mutual company so I can participate in the dividends. Or do you want to just get the best wealth in a stock situation? If you're going to, if you're trying to get the best wealth, um, net wealth build up in a stock situation, then Demutualization has proven 12 out of the last 15 times that the stock actually outperforms the S&P 500. So that would be a good thing. Now, the three times that it was actually two of them were actually negative, but it doesn't mean they, it doesn't mean that they were negative. They lost money. It just means they were negative to what the S&P did. Mm-hmm. So they still probably, you know, performed all right. So you have to actually ask yourself, what are you trying to do? I don't think this is going to happen very much. Um, it's all, it, there's, frankly, there's only you know several dozen mutual companies left. The reason they're left is because um, they have done a great job of of um, being conservative, mm-hmm. and and so I I think this is I think the in the past we even, we didn't even talk about this part, but one another reason why companies demutualize is because in the eighties, their contracts, a lot of these contracts, and remember, these are contracts. I always tell people, these are contracts. And Nelson used to always say that contracts are the backbone of society. 
Uh, you can't change contracts or all society is going to cripple, be crippled. These contracts, actually, a lot of them had fixed loan interest rates. And so they couldn't go up above a certain amount. And so when interest rates in money markets in the 80s were paying 12.5% or CDs were paying 12.5%, they would go borrow money at a fixed interest rate from their policies and then put it in a CD. And they would make that arbitrage between 5% loan value and 12.5%. So they make 7.5% in a very safe way. But what that did was it took, it sucked money out of their insurance company. And so their re reserve requirements came way down. Mm -hmm. And so as their reserve requirements rate came way down by contract, then they couldn't change the contracts. They had to go and try to raise money and they demutualized. Mm. Since then, then obviously, insurance companies became smart about this and said, we're going to actually tie our loan rate to the Moody's bond index, and it's a variable loan rate. But that's okay, because as interest rates go up on the loan, that means the company's also making more on their bond portfolio. So dividends historically have always stayed above the loan rate. And so they've sought once again, they solve they solved the problem of uh, the reserve requirements. You know what I think is really interesting about this is I think often somebody who gets into infinite banking does so because they hear what's in it for them as the purchaser of the policy. And they think from their lens, from from my lens as a policy owner, I want a policy that has a good death benefit. I want to have my cash value growing. I want as great of growth in my cash value as early as possible, but I want it to also grow as long as possible. I want my dividends to be as high as possible. I want to be able to use this as much as possible, pay as low of a interest rate on loans in my policy. That's what we want as the policy owner. But what's really interesting is to look into the inner workings of the insurance company is kind of like looking at the backside of your perspective. And it's really important to dig into that enough to really understand what is backing these guarantees that you have as a policy owner. And it's really valuable to understand how the life insurance company works because it gives, it shouldn't be a black box. It shouldn't be this, I, I don't know how it works. I, I just trust that it works. Well, we don't want to be in that position. You really want to say, I want to ask the questions, dig in, figure out what concerns there could be on the horizon and be aware of them and know how life insurance companies resolve these concerns. Because I think that gives a tremendous amount more confidence in being able to use life insurance as a foundation of your wealth building. Yeah, I, Rachel, that's a very good point. And, and what, I, what I find interesting is people try to beat up the guarantees of insurance, but once again, they're comparing it to guarantee. And it's like, well, what are you going to do with your money if you, if you don't put in an insurance contract? Well, I'm just going to leave it in the bank. Mm -hmm. Why are you going to leave it in the bank? Well, because I got guarantees of FDIC. Well, what is that? Well, that means that if the bank goes under, I'm guaranteed to get my money back up to $250,000. Well, that's true, but the FDIC only has a quarter of a percent of all deposits. And so the only way that the government can then help the FDIC out is actually sell more bonds and borrow more money. And so, yeah, they, they could pay off all the depositors, but you would actually have inflation. Yeah. So your money wouldn't be worth as much as it was prior to that. Right. And so Which that's a lot to follow, but it's extremely true. Yes. So there's pros and cons to everything. It drives me crazy when somebody says, well, why would I put this in and get 35 to 5% return, internal rate of return, when I can get greater returns than that in the stock market? And I say, well, yeah, once again, compared to what? You don't, you don't worry about losing money in the stock market? You know, well, historically this and historically that. And I can say, well, historically... These insurance companies perform very, very well historically. 
Mm-hmm. So you always have to be asking yourself, compared to what? And what am I trying to accomplish? So that's why we always want to give as much information out as possible so that people can make an informed decision about what they're trying to accomplish. And we're telling you all the time that uh, this is a Swiss Army knife strategy, what we believe is to be a foundational strategy to where you store your capital, mm-hmm. to then re um, deploy into an investment if you want. And the final thing I like to say about this, good companies that I actually talk to the, the leadership and the actuaries, I asked this, I've asked this question over the last, uh, I don't know, five or six years. Time flies now. I don't know when I actually asked it, but I have asked this and got the question. Why do you allow people to borrow at 5% Um, because aren't you worried that a lot of people are going to borrow a lot of money and pull it, pull out the reserves and so on and so forth. And they're like, no, because in this interest rate environment, we're getting a return of 5% of the borrowed money. That's actually a better return and a safer return than we can get on a 10 year treasury. So we actually get better returns by doing that than if we were to not allow that by contract. And by the way, just so everybody knows, in order to do business in a state, um, all the states require that there's loan provisions on contracts. That's another question that comes up all the time. Why do these companies allow you to borrow money uh, you know, against the contract? Well, because the states don't allow them to actually do business in their state unless that's part of the contract provision. It's another thing that people don't know about. Mm-hmm. So, so there's no mystery here. There really isn't. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think um, just asking those questions, and I think that's come up on my mind and multiple people as well as I'm thinking about, okay, so why will they extend the loan to a policy owner? And especially why will they, why do they like policy loans? Why is it good for the life insurance company? So uh, Bruce, I just really appreciate the full spectrum of, knowledge that was in this particular show. And I think if you're coming to this podcast and maybe it's the first one you've ever listened to, um, I challenge you to not be overwhelmed. Go check out some of the other shows that we've done as well. We're always wanting to make sure that you have the right information to make decisions. And ultimately, the best decision you can make is coming way back to what is the purpose of my money? And Bruce, you said this really well, but I just really want to re-emphasize in your financial life, you cannot just say, I want to go get a high rate of return. Okay, well, why do you want that high rate of return? Well, because maybe you want to turn $100,000 into $500,000 in a five-year time. I mean, I'm just kind of throwing out something ridiculous, but maybe that's what you want to be able to do. Why do you want that? Why do you want $500,000 in five years time? Well, maybe you want to be able to turn that at that point into income and income stream so you can live at your current standard of living at that time frame and not run out of money. Okay, well, that is the purpose of your money now. You're you're now thinking, you're saying, I want income. I want to turn my money into consistent, predictable income in the future. But you have to understand what you're trying to accomplish. And everybody has a need for income. Everybody has a need for a place to store cash. Because if you didn't have a place to store cash, you hear us say place to store cash all the time. If you didn't have a place to store it, then wherever you put it would be at risk. Or it would just have to, I don't know, lay on the floor in your house and have people at risk of, I don't know, picking up, pick it up, picking it up and walking away with it. So you need to be in a position where you're storing it somewhere. It's remaining, it's maintaining its value. You can get to it and use it when you want it. And it's not going to grow at nothing. You want as good of a growth rate with guarantees of accessibility. And that is why we use infinite banking. That's why we use this high cash value life insurance. We call it privatized banking as well. You may hear it called cash flow banking. You may hear, hear it called um, be your bank, own banker. Bank on yourself. Bank on yourself. There's a lot of terms that actually come all the way back to Nelson Nash and his concept called the infinite banking concept. And it is that concept of using your whole life insurance and not just having it as a product, but using the cash value while you're living. If you have liked anything that we said today or you have questions, please go ahead and 
hit that thumbs up on the video. Please go ahead and send us a comment. Send us an email at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. You can click over to themoneyadvantage.com, find out everything that we have available to offer. I just want to remind you that life insurance is one piece of your financial picture. And really, we want to help you accomplish time and money freedom. So wherever you have your, in your perspective, you might have a purpose of your money to store cash. You might have a purpose to send your kids to college. You might have a purpose to have income for your own future. You might want to um, have a certain investment and the purpose is that you want to grow that money. Whatever your purpose of money is, we would love to help you accomplish. We'd love to help you take that purpose and build it into a system for creating time and money freedom. Not just one piece, not just one strategy or one financial product, but a whole system of looking at your entire financial life and optimizing and maximizing your money so that you take what you have, you keep as much of it as possible, you protect it, and you use it to make as much as possible. So with that being said, we will close the show today. Thank you so much for being with us. And in closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.